most of us here love the Bible. It's the book that led us to salvation, to peace with God, and we love it so much that we're Bible teachers, Sunday school teachers or parents that want to teach our children. But how can we take a mysterious and difficult book and make it relevant to little children in our lives? Some of the Bible is almost 3,500 years old. Many grown men will study the Bible until they receive a PhD, and they'll still find more to learn. Theologians over the centuries struggle with the intricacies and differences that can come up with the Bible. And much of it, we have a hard time understanding ourselves. So how can we make it meaningful and relevant to the children in our lives? And today, I hope to facilitate a time of sharing so that we can exchange ideas and practical experiences to equip us in this task. Now, the Bible's not like teaching any other book. It's a living word. It's God's word. And so just to preface it, we always need to approach our lesson planning with prayer and ask God to show us what does he want us to teach to the children that we're going to be teaching this day. If we don't believe enough, if we don't believe what we teach enough to allow it to change our own lives, if we don't live as we teach, then our words are empty and meaningless. If we're teaching our children to rejoice in the Lord and then we're depressed, we're being hypocritical. If we're teaching them to be long-suffering and patient and then we blow up at them, we're inconsistent. So we need to live what we preach. Also, we need to take time to personally meditate and read the lesson ourselves several times if possible. It should be possible if we're teaching, uh, before we're teaching, and do it without any personal agenda and let God speak to you personally, and that will help you in uh, teaching others. So before I go on, I just needed to give this piece of paper uh, to you, Lolita, just because you're here. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, um, she's seeming to have a little problem. She doesn't know what to do with that paper. Could somebody give me some suggestions as to what Lolita should do with that paper? Anybody? I don't, okay, fold it up. Amy says fold it up. So anybody else have any? Okay, draw a picture on it. Oh, give it back. There you go. <laughs> All right, pass it to the next person. What do you want me to do? Exactly. So a lot of times when we're teaching Sunday school, we go to class... And our lessons can be like that. We give all this wonderful information, and the children go home, and they don't know what they're supposed to do with it, and they don't remember anything. So before we can actually plan a lesson, we need to set some goals, some things that we actually want to accomplish by the end of the lesson. And then once you have your goals, you can plan your lesson to help achieve those goals. Now, whenever we're setting goals, they need to be manageable, and they need to be measurable. Manageable means if you have a 45-minute class, you, cannot, uh, you need to plan your goals in, in such that they can be completed in that amount of time. They also have to be manageable in terms of the age group we're teaching. Now, there was one teacher that I talked to once who taught the two- and three-year-olds, since we were talking about them earlier, and she said her only goal for that class was just to keep them busy and out of the parents' hair while the children were in church services. And this is an actual Sunday school teacher. And you saw from our video clip, the first little guy that was talking about Jesus coming out of the cave, he's only two, two and a half. They can actually learn a lot. You might have to repeat a lot, do a lot of interactive things, but they can learn a lot. We also, there are other times when teachers shoot too high, and I tend to have that issue. I know last year I taught the Tiny Tot Choir at camp, and I hadn't taught Tiny Tots in a while. And I found this beautiful lyrical piece. I got the best violinist at camp. I'm not going to say who it was so he didn't get any, to accompany it. And I was thinking, oh, it's going to be so beautiful. But I forgot that I was not teaching primaries or juniors. I was teaching tiny tots. And to get them to sing beautifully and lyrically ended up becoming hysterical, basically. And I, it was not a manageable goal. And as you teach and work with children, you're going to learn when you've shot too low and when you've shot too high, and then you can readjust for next time. The other thing is your goal needs to be measurable. How can you measure your objective? How do you know that the children learned what you wanted them to learn? Well, one of my favorite tools is called an exit ticket by some professionals. And basically, I will not let a child exit the classroom 
until they've, they're able to answer a particular list of questions. And I go through, every child in the classroom, I go through my list of questions and just check on them to make sure that they've all learned. Now, there are other ways you can measure whether or not the kids have learned what you've taught them. And I was just wondering if any of you had any uh, things that have worked for you so that the, the ways that you've measured whether or not the children can, have actually learned your goals or objectives. Is anybody that with some experience, can they share any ways? All right, for the younger children, that's a great thing. You, know, you can have them, after the story, draw a picture of the story and get more detailed and more detailed with the picture, and it can uh, show that they've learned something. Wonderful. Like, actually have them tell this, re, sort of retell the story. That's one of the best ways to know what they really picked up. Okay, that's another great uh, way to evaluate whether they can actually act out the story. I usually try to tell the story, and then I say, you have to listen because you're going to tell me the story after. And then I, I stop at a certain point, and I said, now you have to fill in the blank. What happened next? And then they're, they're, so they're more alert when you're first telling the story because they know they're going to be. They're going to be called upon later. <laughs> Very good. Right. Any other suggestions or ideas, ways that you evaluate whether the kids have accomplished? I have actually given pop quizzes at the end. Oh, you're a mean one. <laughs> okay. No, that's a great one. And a lot of people will use games, Bible Jeopardies, worksheets, different things like that to have the children uh, complete. Yeah, so there are a lot of ways to measure the goals. What I want to do now is pretend that we are teaching next Sunday. I picked a common story so that hopefully most of you are familiar with it, and it's going to be the story that we're going to keep going back to in the middle of this, or throughout this class. It's going to be the story of the Good Samaritan. And what I want to do now is take a few minutes, and I kind of divided you up in age groups, and I'd like your group to write one, just one goal, because a lot of times we can have several goals that we could accomplish in a classroom, but I want you to write one goal for the age group that you're targeting, that you would like to accomplish by the end of your class on the Good Samaritan. Now, your goal needs to be measurable. So you can't just say, student will learn the story of the Good Samaritan. How do you know they're going to learn it? You need to come up with some way to evaluate that. And you can start off with, student will learn. And then you can pick what objective you want in your group. So I want you to kind of break up. And I'm going to give you a few minutes. If you're not in a group, join one. OK, let's see here. We've got. What do you have there? Four to five-year-olds right here, two to three-year-olds, six to seven-year-olds, 10 to 12 back there, and eight to nine. So come up and uh, do, you need, do you all have paper and pencils? Because I want you to write down your objective. By the end of our class this Sunday, the student will fill in the blank. So think of the story of the Good Samaritan. What might you want them to go home with? If you're really, really stuck, I'll come help you, but I'd, I'd like you to try to do it yourself, okay? <laughs> Keep in mind, just pick one goal. There could be a hundred goals for this story. I'm fully aware of that. Just pick one simple goal to do. Okay, I've given you about a 30-second warning, so you better start writing. <laughs> Student will, and then fill in the blanks. Okay, I need you to finish up. Whoever's got the pen, just fill in something. We'll uh, evaluate it here. Okay, and if you had trouble with this, don't worry about it, because it's not easy to write goals sometimes. Yes, Heidi. That, um, that's okay. That's, right now, I, I, didn't, I didn't comprehensive. No, um, it can be about anything at this point. We will get into application a little bit more, but okay, two- and three-year-olds. <laughs> All right, can you tell me what your goal is for your class today? Learn to be helpful when someone is in need. Okay, the student will learn to be helpful to someone who is in need, with, when someone is in need. Okay, that's a very uh, good goal. Now, how are we going to measure that? <laughs> we, the one thing, we just didn't get to that at this point, but the one thing is that we can give them scenarios. This is what's happened, or show them a picture. How could you help? 
And, and if they can answer that, then obviously they've learned. Okay, I'm going to repeat that just for the sake of the recording, but they mentioned that they would measure it, which they didn't have a chance to write in their objective. You might say something like, as evidenced by uh, children being able to look at pictures of various types of people and identify who is in need and say how they would help those specific people. Okay, who's doing four to five-year-olds? Good. Okay, so through the story of the Good Samaritan, say it again so I can repeat it. Sure. The student will be able to give an example of seeing a need. The student will be able to give an example of seeing a need. And following through and helping. And following through and helping. So that is a measurable thing because they could go around the room, ask each student for a particular need that they might see, and then say how they would help. Okay, six to seven-year-olds. By the end of class... Uh, the children will be able to identify verbally to whom God wants them to be a neighbor in their own lives. Okay. By the end of class on Sunday, the children will be able to identify verbally to whom God wants them to be a neighbor. So I'm expecting that by the end of the class, you'll go around the room and ask each child, now who are you going to be a neighbor to this week or something like that. Okay, eight to nine-year-olds. Uh, to, to learn to be a good neighbor in time of need. Okay, let's look at that here. To learn to be a good neighbor in time of need. Now, how are we going to measure that? We're going to have them give examples. And then we were wondering, can we have them follow up next week if it's the same class? I think that would be a great idea. Yeah, you could have them uh, give some examples or say, when I, uh, uh, the ch as a, the child will write down one activity that, or one, uh, help me with some words, everybody, one uh, incident that, or that they were able to help somebody uh, during the week and bring it back next week or something like that. Yeah. Okay, 10 to 12s. That's what Something very similar. Okay, so there are a lot of objectives we could write. I mean, you could do comprehension objectives, like student will list the three men who encountered the injured man on the road of Jericho. When children are young, okay, I don't think that it's wrong to have, the, I mean, this is the time for them to memorize the facts about the Bible and learn a lot of those kinds of things. A lot of my goals were similar to yours. But it's really important to make them measurable because if not, you get answers like my daughter gave. You know, that skit that we did this morning, I didn't just make that up out of the blue. I've had the kids come home from Sunday school. I don't know. And so somehow there was not an objective in that class that was hammered in. And they got home and they really didn't have a clue what was going on. So once we have our objective, then we've got to plan our lesson and teach our lesson. Now, I will rarely teach a lesson without begin, I'll always begin a lesson with something called a hook. <laughs> a hook is when you kind of, you know what a hook does, right? It grabs something. So I like to usually capture the children's attention right at the beginning of class. Because if we can get their attention at the beginning, we, can, we have a, more, uh, a better chance of keeping them with us the whole time. Now the hook should not take up half your class. They should not take over the class. It should be maybe one to four minutes. It was sort of like what I did with a little media introduction here. Kind of get you in the mood of where I was going with this class today. It can be a, something like a story, a prop, an analogy, or a challenge. Now, when teaching young children, I use a puppet who comes to class weekly. As you saw with Michaela, Wooly the lamb made an impression on her, and she remembered, and this works really well. You know, I've even gone up to eight-year-old, eight-year-old, years old with a puppet, although I have heard, Julie, that your brother can go even older with puppets, so, yeah. And as a matter of fact, uh, he's here somewhere, but you see, he's quite shy. Waldo, what's wrong? I'm a drama, I like drama here, you can tell, right? <laughs> Hold on here. Some big walrus just came and beat me up in my tooth. <laughs> and what makes me even more upset is Wanda and Waldo walrus just passed me up. They didn't even help me at all. I got in a big fight and hurt myself and they didn't even help me. Oh dear Waldo, I am so sorry you're hurt. I wonder if you children could help Waldo feel better. Here, Lolita, why don't you put this Band-Aid on Waldo? <laughs> there, I'm sure that will help. There we go. And Heidi, why don't you give him a glass of water? <laughs> Thank you. 
Barb, could you, sorry you guys in the front, you're stuck. <laughs> Barb, could you cover him with a blanket? There we go. There. Do you feel better now, Waldo? Yes, I do. Well, today we're going to learn a lesson about someone who got hurt on the road. And someone very interesting came to help him out. So that's an example of uh, using a puppet. And actually, Waldo's 30 years old. If you, check, if you check the camp pictures downstairs by Lehman Auditorium, look on the bottom left picture. You won't see me, but you will see Waldo sticking up his head between Walter Schlarb and my brother Mark, OK? So he's old. But you know what? He's, they still, the kids still love him, and they, get to, they sort of form a relationship, and then he's able to help impart lessons. Now, for the older children, the 10 to 12-year-olds, I would uh, tend not to use something like a, like a puppet like that. But I would maybe use another kind of an object lesson. <laughs> oh, man, I am such a klutz. Oh, dear, here we go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're not putting that on tape. Okay, there we go. Uh, Judah, why did you help me when I just dropped all those papers? <laughs> all right, it's, it seemed like, we, like I needed help. I did need help. I forget your first name. Amy, why did you help me? <laughs> okay, Crystal, why did you not help me? Okay, she was too far away. Most of you in the back, is that why you didn't help me? <laughs> Today, we're going to learn about a lesson about some people who didn't bother to help someone in need and about another person who did. Another example of a simple hook that usually gets people's attention right away, and then they can uh, stay with you throughout the lesson. Now, the, so a lot of people say, well, how do you come up with these ideas? Joe's one to ask me that a lot of times. Like, how did you think of that? And that, that's a tricky one, but a lot of times uh, I will bra I'll brainstorm with people. If you're not a really creative person, a lot of times curriculum will provide you with hooks. Sometimes people in your family, if you discuss the lesson, and actually it's a great thing to discuss the lesson, even with your children, to get ideas on how to capture their attention. So after capturing their attention, we have to impart the Bible passage. Next slide. <laughs> okay. And I'd like you actually to move to the next slide, and then we're going to come back to this one. Look at this passage. <laughs> this is our passage today, and it looks rather daunting. And so how can we take the Bible story and yet ma uh, make it engaging and interesting for children? Let's go back. <coughs> Oftentimes when we tell the story, this is where teachers lose their class, especially young uh, teachers of young children, that's what I've noticed. But I have, you know, we're, we're competing with a fast-action, media-based society. And so the kids are not always lit, used to just sitting down and listening to somebody meekly tell a little story. But I have found that if we can act as if we're excited when we're telling the story, even reading straight from the King James Version of the Bible, we can captivate a child. Just reading with enthusiasm, varying our voices, varying our volume and our pitch, using a few visual aids with younger children sitting close and coming right up near to them. We'll move on to older children in a minute. But I want to go ahead and just give you an example of how I would read a Bible story to probably anybody. Well, I'm going to put a little more drama into it than I would do at home maybe. But a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves. He was stripped of his raiment. He was wounded. And he, uh, I missed, I wasn't reading, sorry. <laughs> and departed, leaving him half dead. There's nothing wrong with quiet, by the way, because it keeps them captivated. Now let me get my reading here. <laughs> and by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he looked on him and passed by. 
on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. And a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, excuse the bandage, and bound his wounds and poured in oil and wine and set him on a donkey and brought him to an inn. A beast, sorry. (laughs) I was going to talk about that next. (laughs) And take care of him. You know, sometimes the children's versions aren't always accurate. (laughs) So I always compare what you're uh, teaching to the Bible itself. And I would recommend that when you're reading to younger children, if you are using a children's version, just stick it in your Bible so that they realize this is a Bible story and it comes from the Bible. Now, when you're working with older children, you want them to learn to read the Bible for themselves. But... How many of you have heard like a bunch of six, seven, eight-year-olds trying to read the Bible? Okay, sometimes you kind of lose the message of the passage because they're stumbling around reading. Actually, we have some trouble in our adult Bible class too. I mean, you know, some people, they just, they're struggling. They're learning to read, but we want them to learn to read the Bible and, and to have this experience. And I don't like to just neglect that. So first of all, we can help all our children find the passage in the Bible. And uh, so I would, I would make sure that everybody at least finds the passage. And so here are some ways we can deal with it. If we have a big group of children, one thing we can do is do some unison reading. So I'm going to teach you how to do that right now. When I say everyone, that means you read. When I tell you to pause, then I'm going to read. I'm going to start. Let's look at the passage, and I hope you can all read it. <laughs> and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, everyone Pause. He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Everyone. Pause. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Example of unison reading. It gets everyone involved. They're following in the Bible. Those that are maybe not as good of a reader, they they can kind of blend in with everybody else and feel like they've accomplished something. Now, if you know your children and you know that some are better readers than others, you can actually call on individual children to finish the reading, not telling them ahead of time who's going to be reading, because that way everyone will be following because they don't know if they're going to be called upon. So let's try that now. And Jesus answering said, Patty, Natalie, where's Elizabeth? Pause. Now, I let Elizabeth read longer because she's a better reader, maybe, and then uh, Natalie a little shorter. But that way, <laughs> nothing personal. But that's the way to get more of the children involved. And, and that, that is kind of different ways that you can impart the passage. You can also have people act out different parts. Now, during the reading, there are going to be some things coming up here that they will not understand. And I forget this all the time. But I have 10 to 40, some of us maybe have 50, 60 years on, oh, we're older than, than the children we're teaching. We have a lot of experience. We know what a lot of things mean. But little children don't understand things. Uh, I wanted to think of an analogy, but I couldn't come up with it. Has anyone ever taught something and assumed that the kids knew what you meant and then later on... <laughs> That's an excellent example. Excellent. Melody? We in kindergartners and we were working on numbers. And uh, we had five little bears, and so we were te- teaching them to count. And um, there was one girl that was just struggling. So I just thought, I'll start with three, you know. I said, all right, this is one, two, three. And I took one away. And I said, now how many do you have? And um, she said, oh, she was just quiet. And then I said, you have two left because 
I counted one, two. She said, no, you took two. Because she thought the bear was number two. Oh, okay. <laughs> even if you don't, you know, even if you do say something they don't understand, you need to go back and, and see what you can do to fix it. Right. That's an excellent example. And I'm sure that any of us that have children, I, it's like I, I thought, I have all these children, I can't think of an example right now, but uh, you get the idea. So in this story of the Good Samaritan, let's just shout out some things that probably uh, a child maybe doesn't even know what we're talking about. A Levite. What's a Levite? What's a priest? What's a Samaritan? Raiment. Very good. What are some other things? Yeah, pouring oil and wine, that's kind of unusual in our day and age. Tempted? Yes, that's a good one. Lawyer? And they probably don't know what that is. Maybe even like Jericho, Jerusalem. I mean, we have to assume that a lot children, they have to learn all of this. We've learned all of this. And so we need to take the time after, you can do it either way. Sometimes I'll just read the story straight because... It's nice to get the whole flow of the story. And then I'll go back and go through it again and explain, illustrate these concepts. And again, they're going to be related to your goals. You know, two and three-year-olds, sometimes I would have them memorize what a Levite, I would teach them the word Levite, priest, just to get them accurate. But I might not spend a lot of time explaining what they are and just kind of letting them learn terminology. There's nothing wrong with that. And then as they get older, maybe explaining more detail. And if you noticed in the video, our son Timothy, he was, he's in the 12-year-old class. He went on to this big dissertation about uh, why if Jesus rose from the, didn't rise, rose from the dead, he could be a liar and all this kind of stuff. It was like, okay, so when they're 12, they can kind of get a lot. So that, first, that teacher that day obviously spent a lot of time explaining some of that. So make sure that you are, are in tune with what children know. Don't assume that they understand everything about the story. Once we impart the message, then we have to check their comprehension. Did they comprehend what we were trying to teach? Now, this is, we're going to talk about now mainly facts about the story, just your basic facts that you wanted, your goal was whatever, to memorize these such and such facts about the stories. There's a book I used that helped me a lot. It was a book called, by Doug Lemove, and it's called Teach Like a Champion. Now, this is not a Christian book. This is actually a secular book where this man went around and just analyzed all these really good teachers and said, try to analyze, why are they good teachers? Why did the, their students accomplish all these great goals, whereas other teachers maybe were not as accomplished? And they found a lot of common characteristics amongst these teachers. And I'm going to be borrowing a lot of his terminology because I found them to be very accurate and very descriptive of what we want to do. And so the first thing we want to do with checking comprehension is a trick called no opt out. If a student cannot answer the question, give a cue, but end with that student answering correctly. That way nobody can get away without knowing things. And so Ted and Judah, can you stand up for me with your little papers there? Okay, who's student one, Ted or Judah? Ted. Ted, what did the lawyer first ask Jesus? I don't know. Judah, what did the lawyer first ask Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Ted, what did the lawyer first ask Jesus? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Right. Now, Ted, you thank you very much. Okay, that's no opt-out. I would not let him get away with, I don't know. And even though he's just mimicking Judah in a way, he's still, it's going to help reinforce the answer to the question. Another... Then we have to. <laughs> doesn't get it. Okay, go ahead. We are going to get to that. <laughs> we're going because there's. Okay, we're going to get into behavior a little bit here. Uh, later on, uh, hopefully, <laughs> and we'll try kind of address some of that, and then if that doesn't hit it, then we will discuss that later. Another thing that we need to set is right is right. This technique means we set a high standard of correctness. Now, we often tell the story of our son Daniel, who is colorblind, took him to an art museum on a field trip, 
uh, we homeschool, for those of you who don't know, so anything that your child says reflects on you personally as a teacher, so I'm very sensitive. <laughs> so we go to this art museum, and there's this beautiful painting, and the docent says, and so what colors do you see in the picture? And my little seven-year-old or six -year -old raises his hand, and he's colorblind, mind you, and he says, I see orange. Now, there was no orange in that picture. But this docent, being everything's okay in this day and age, well, yeah, there, there could be some orange in there. Oh, I see what you mean. And Daniel went away feeling good, but he was wrong. Okay? So it's really important to be precise and, and ask for the right answer and get the right answer. So, Julie, let's, let me show you how to work with right is right. You ready to stand up? So, Julie, what did the lawyer first ask Jesus? Now, Julie, you're right in that the lawyer did ask that question later, but I wanted to know the lawyer's first question. What must I do to inherit life? Right. Eternal life? There you go. So I wouldn't let her get, get away with a wrong answer. Right is right, and let's, we need to teach truth when we're teaching our children. Another technique we can use is cold call. This is when you call on students regardless of whether or not they raise their hands. Some children tend to zone or daydreams. Others are very enthusiastic, and they kind of take over the class. Now, if we really want all of our children to learn, we need to keep them all engaged. So by not taking hands, but, and not, don't use this as a punishment. This is just how we do things in this class, okay? Uh, we can get them and keep them all engaged. Now, this also works really great for when you're memorizing Bible verses, and I'll kind of demonstrate what I mean by this now. So, what happened to the traveler on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, Heidi? <laughs> now, Heidi will get used to this once she's in my class. She won't be so taken aback. Let me try that again. Let me slow down here. So, what happened to the traveler on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho? Very good. Who passed by him first? Bob? Don't worry if you get it wrong. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry, what did you say? It was the priest, that is right. So what was a priest, Heidi? Now, the way, I did that on purpose because, see, she might have thought she was off the hook. And so she was going to sit back and coast the rest of this time. But um, So it's always good. Some people actually draw names out of hats and put them back in the hat. <laughs> so what is a priest? Well, assuming I taught it to you, so make something up at this point. I didn't really teach you. Okay, a religious leader. We'll let that go. And uh, who passed by him next? Monica? <laughs> See, it does kind of shock you, doesn't it? Because you're, But, you know, if you got used to it, you're going to be listening to my questions. You can tell. Like, I bet more of you are going to listen next time. So who stopped and helped him? Heather? The Good Samaritan. Okay. So that's an example of cold call. And if I'm teaching my children Bible verses at home, especially if you have a lot of children and you don't really have time to go individually with them, what I might start off is, I, I, sh I hope I don't throw anybody out. Well, maybe Joe and I can do this. I hope we can. Um, so if I start off uh, with one child, I might say, okay, Joe, start John 3.16. Margaret, can you continue? And Melody? In Spanish, just do it in Spanish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so by calling out names like that, it kind of keeps everybody on their toes. Another technique that probably most of you are familiar with is called call and response. And I'll use this type of technique when I've already taught and questioned the group, and I'm pretty confident that everybody knows the answer, and I just kind of want to reinforce what we're going through. So let me show, this, show you how this works. Everyone. Who passed by the man on the roadside first? The priest. Great. Who passed by second? The Levite. And who stopped and helped? The good Samaritan. Again, gets everybody engaged in the class. It's not inappropriate to wait. Delay a few seconds after asking a question, and you'll get a little bit uh, a better response from the student. So if there's a little bit of silence, it's okay. The other thing is normalizing error. Getting it wrong and then getting it right is one of the fundamental principles of learning. If an answer is wrong, we fix it as quickly as possible. If the answer is right, 
we don't really flatter and fuss over it too much. You can just say very good and go on. You don't have to just like keep going on about it. We just we, we need to make uh, errors normal so that the kids don't feel embarrassed or upset if they make a mistake. I'll often use Waldo to help me with this. Waldo, when Jesus asked the lawyer, who was the neighbor to the one who fell among thieves? What did the lawyer respond? That's not the question I want to ask. I'm reading this. <laughs> Let's forget that. All right. Yeah, no, that's okay. Okay. What did the lawyer say? Oh, this is a tough question. Hmm. Oh, the priest? No, the priest wasn't the answer. Class, can you help Waldo? Who was the neighbor? The good Samaritan. Okay, Waldo. Who was the neighbor to the one who fell among the thieves? Oh, I didn't hear you all very well. I don't have any ears on my head. Um, was it the Levite? No, Waldo, listen very carefully. Class, maybe we better speak a little bit louder. Who was the one that helped the man? The good Samaritan. Oh, the good Samaritan. Right, Waldo. So see, we didn't make Waldo feel bad because he doesn't know the answer. And then you can do this without a puppet, too. Normalize error. If we, okay, life application. I want to move on to life application. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Again, something different about the Bible compared to any other books is we want the children to apply it to their lives. And we need life lessons to teach from our passages. Now, a lot of us, we just wish, oh, we could just grab the heart of our child and just have him internalize and just capture the lesson and go help out everybody in the world. We've achieved our goal. But you know what? Sometimes with children, their heart maybe won't, they won't always be touched by every lesson we teach. We don't need to, like, we don't need to kick ourselves too much for that. We can try to teach them. We definitely can teach them a life application. We can't make it and force it into their heart is what I'm saying. And this is God's work, and this is where prayer for the children before and during your teaching session to really ask God to take these life lessons and, and help it go into their lives and change their lives. So some life lessons from this passage. Some of you already gave them when you gave your objectives and goals. I should help those in need. Another one might be I should not allow prejudice to interfere with doing God's work. That might be a lesson for older children because the Samaritan, there was prejudice against the people from Samaria. And the Levites and the priests maybe had prejudice against that injured man. I must be willing to sacrifice time, money, personal comfort. True religion will help me step out of my comfort zone to serve others. Find a life application in your lesson. I wouldn't, in a 45-minute class, I'd probably only pick one because that's really all you're going to have time to really hammer, hammer down. So we need to make our life application lessons applicable to the children. Now, some of you gave some great ways to do that already. One was, uh, some, I think the younger class was like showing a picture of, what, would, what did you have in mind when you were saying showing a picture to the children of somebody in need? Okay. So maybe you'd show them a picture of someone with a bruised knee or a, a, yeah, that fell off a bicycle, and then you could say, now how would you help this child? And have you ever helped a child like this? And kind of use that as an illustration. Uh, what are some other ways that we could, like say, let's say, let's pick a life application just to make it simple. Um, let me see which one I picked because there are so many we could use. When you see someone need in need, stop and help. That's a real basic one. So how could you teach that life application? When you see someone in need, stop and help. Okay, some ideas. Ted. I, I, I can think of, of a little bit more application that I, I know Darren and Siobhan did. Uh-huh. Because they cross back and forth across the border. Uh, okay. Every, every Sunday, okay, because they attend Beverly Hills. Now, right next to the border, there are people need work, need money, okay? <laughs> They chose to buy gift cards to grocery stores or food for food for certain restaurants. Instead of saying, here's money, which is what they, not really what they Right, right. They need some, if they need food, they, so they taught their girls 
that by doing this, we actually are saying that's what they, their need is. That's excellent. Much easier than. Now, if you were doing that as a class, you might, well, but you could apply it. You could still do that. I mean, as a teacher, you could buy a, a card and say, I don't know, you'd have to think about it. I mean, you could give each child maybe a $2 card. If, if money's not an issue with, with you, you could give each child a $2 grocery card and say, I want you to find somebody who's going to need it this week and give it to them. So we can apply that in a classroom situation. Uh, another thing you could do, little children, bring in little dolls or stuffed animals and have the children provide food and water, that type of thing. You could have them all, the, sometimes I've taken the kids all out of Sunday school class and go walk around the church. Maybe someone's working in the kitchen and they might need some help and they can all go in and, and help out there. But to actually just, just saying the words with children is usually not enough to really drill it in here. But to actually go out and do the, an activity to reinforce it. Now, time is short. Those of you that are interested in learning how to teach memory verses to children, you can come to me personally, and I can talk to you kind of offline about that. I really also want to have one other slide. I think it's the next one. Uh, that's my memory verse, so I'm going to skip that one. Every minute matters. So after you've taught the lesson and part of the passage, checked their comprehension, done some activity to reinforce their life application, and you still have time in your class. Every minute matters in class. Everything you should do, you do in your class should revolve around the goals. You know, if the, like in the little skit about the teacups this morning, I don't know how many of you saw it, but teacups really didn't, you could do teacups with the Good Samaritan, but that would be kind of a stretch. But, it's, but if it doesn't fit with the lesson, I skip it. I like to reinforce. Even refreshments, when you serve cookies and stuff to the little ones, can reinforce your lesson. I wouldn't probably make little priests and Levite cookies. I, although, you know, I have bought those little elf cookies and pretended that they were, like, certain characters or whatever that, that you can buy. But just by saying, here, Heidi, why don't you serve Amy and be a good Samaritan? It's just a little reinforcement. Everything over and over again will, dry, will help the kids go home, and they'll remember what you taught. I want to spend the last few minutes on classroom management and discipline because... As you heard, uh, Timothy, our last, the last one that did the skit this morning, he, uh, he didn't learn anything because the class was disrupted by bad behavior. And this goes for us, those of us are teaching children, our own children at home. If the children are bouncing off the walls and not behaving, no matter how great your goals are, no matter how manageable they are and measurable and all this stuff, they still won't learn anything. So a couple of points with this, and I won't be able to go into a lot of detail, so if we need to talk about it after, feel free and approach me. The first one is warm and strict. I Notice I did not say be warm or strict. Young teachers, especially I notice with young teachers, they want so much for the kids to like them. And I like my kids to like me too, but sometimes we're so warm, we're too soft, and things can just become chaotic. Sometimes we're too strict, and that just will shut kids off too. So we need to be warm and strict. We need to be caring, funny, but by the book, relentless, and sometimes just unmovable. We need to do both. How can we be both? Well, some ways are explain why you do what you do. So if you give a rule, tell them why. I want you to keep your eyes on me so you won't get distracted with other things going on in the room. The rule is strict. The why is warm and helps them understand. Distinguish between behavior and, peop and people. Your behavior, Lolita, is inconsiderate. Not, Lolita, you're inconsiderate. Slight different way of speaking, but it's a little warmer than to attack her personally. We need to demonstrate that consequences are temporary. This is a hard one for me. I had one, one or two of our children are a little more difficult, and I was giving consequences constantly. I won't go into details to what those are, but uh, I would give them constantly, and sometimes I'd start to kind of hold a grudge against this difficult child. You start to, like, to just become distasteful, and you don't even want to be around them. But if we're going to be warm and strict, we give out the consequences, and then we smile at them and pretend that everything's okay. And sometimes we do have to pretend. Uh, 
But you, you, you know, you want to forgive because you know what? We want forgiveness too. We don't want people to hold a grudge against us forever. Get over it quickly. And you can also use warm and nonverbal behavior. Next slide. 100%. If you give an instruction, there's one acceptable percentage of students that must comply with your instruction. And that is 100%. And if you can't get 100% of your students to do what you say, it's better off not to say it. This is harder than we think because we don't hear ourselves a lot of times. We had a guest over. She's talking to us about raising children and just wanted some advice on child discipline. And as she's talking to Joe, she's saying to her two-year-old, honey, don't go up the stairs. And then she continues talking. And about five minutes later, the two-year-old's up the stairs, and she didn't even notice it. And Joe said, I just wanted to point out something to you now. So don't ever go around him if you're <laughs> dealing with child discipline. He says, I just want to point out something to you now. Do you realize that you told him not to go up the steps a few minutes ago, and do you know where he is now? See, she would have been better off not saying that because the child has learned that her words are meaningless. And this, this, is, this is really tough. Even in a classroom situation, teaching choir, if I say, everybody sing, and then I don't give out consequences or make them all sing, then I've shown that my words are, are, are meaningless. So I would have been better off just saying, sing, <laughs> or something, you know, in general. But, or maybe even that, yeah, it's a little tough. So if you give a command, you need to follow through with that. So how can we get 100% compliance? Well, there are a couple of things we can do. One is, let's say I've just taught you all that when I speak, I want all of your eyes to be on me. So when I, my voice is speaking, I want all of, my, all of your eyes to be on me. Now, let's see here. Heather wasn't looking at me. And I'll, I could do a nonverbal to her, just go like this, like point to my eye. My glasses in the way, OK, <laughs> like this. And then she, that might just be all it takes. And you just keep teaching, a little nonverbal intervention. You can do positive group correction, like all eyes on me, if this is whatever your goal is. You can do anonymous individual correction. Greg Kufchuk did this to me, the <laughs> in choir yesterday. He said, okay, I was playing the piano in choir yesterday, and I was speeding up. And I wasn't paying attention to him. But he didn't say, Lori, you're speeding up. He just said, we're speeding up. And I knew who it was. He didn't have to say my name, and I slowed down. That's an example of anonymous individual correction, because I was the guilty one, and I knew it. And now sometimes we have to do private individual correction, like Heidi, I've asked everyone to have their eyes on me, you too. And then just keep going on. <laughs> Make it quick. Sometimes we have to do lightning quick public correction, because you don't want a, a difficult child on stage for too long. So I need everyone's eyes, Amy, and then go on. Now you might be thinking, oh, that seems so simple. But, but children will respond to that. Now, every once in a while, you get these difficult cases. And there need to be consequences. They need to be done quickly without disrupting your whole class. And it might be something like, Johnny, you are not tracking me with your eyes. You're going to need to stay after class for five minutes. And sometimes that will just jolt the child enough to get their attention, and then you go on. The last few techniques, and then we'll finish up, are what to do. Sometimes noncompliance is caused by not knowing what to do. A lot of the times, children don't, just don't know what to do. You say, stop goofing around, Elizabeth. And well, what does goofing around mean? Okay, I had one kid in Tiny Talk Choir today. The one kid was going, the other kid was going, you know? And my first, and I, I would go back to default. I said, stop, do, stop goofing around, I said. And they just kept going, and then I said, you stop puffing out your cheeks, and you stop poking him. I, I know this is really basic stuff, but with children, we need to be very specific, very concrete. Stop twiddling your pencil around, or put your pencil down. Put your legs under the chair. Take your feet off the chair of that other student. Be very specific, concrete, something that's observable that they can do. Next slide. Strong voice. I don't mean a loud voice. I mean a voice that the children will listen to. Fewer words are better. I love to lecture, but I, the kids turn on—they turn me off real, real quickly. Just say a few words. There was one story. Okay, I'm going to tell the story, but I, I have to kind of be careful. 
Okay. I heard this one story about, a, uh, this is an older child kind of giving parents some problems, and uh, the mom was ready for dad to go in and just take care of this problem and give him a good lecture and all this. And dad just said, did you learn your lesson? Yep, dad. And it was over. And, and actually the kid got it, and it was fine. Mom wanted this big, long thing, but you know what? Economy of language is good. Don't talk over the other children. Melody's been do, working with the primary choir. She's doing an excellent job of that. She won't go on if the children are whispering and talking. She doesn't want to talk over them. Square up and stand still. If you look like a wimp, they're going to walk all over you. So your stance can even display something. And if everyone's talking, if you get quieter, that will often make them quiet down so they can listen. Lastly, the joy factor. If you have passion, energy, enthusiasm, and fun, it helps hard work to get done. Now, I don't have enough time to do everything, but I'd like you to take one or two minutes and think about something you learned about today. See, I'm doing a measurable goal. <laughs> and jot down one or two things that you will change based on what we heard today. Now, I'm going to start off because I learned a lot by, by putting this together. And two things that I learned was, one, the joy factor. Sometimes teaching, especially if you're teaching your own children at home, drudgery sets in. Or you've been teaching for years, and these kids kind of wear on you after a while. And it's like, no, I need to have more joy when I teach. And even if I just pretend or act like I have joy, it will make me joyful. It will make me feel better. So that was one lesson that I learned. Uh, can you uh, click to the next slide? And the 100% compliance, that one was a good one for me because uh, I know a lot of times I'll say to the kids, okay, time for everyone to color their picture, and then I don't make them all color. And then they learn that I don't really mean what I say. So that was something else I learned, and then talking less while correcting students. I hope I can apply that, but it's a little tricky. So it's uh, our hour is up, and if... You know what I want to do is I want to allow people to leave now that, that need to go. If someone has a question, you can come up to me afterwards and we can address it uh, up here afterwards, okay? So thanks so much for coming, everybody. <laughs>